Hello <clears throat> and welcome to the eighth part of my lecture series, COVID-19, Dodgy Science, Woeful Ethics. Today I would like to start uh, by saying that I dedicate this entire lecture series to my mother, Sunit Ayer, nay Sunit Veer Singh, who gave me her love for science. And um, this is her. That's my mom. <clears throat> uh, like me, uh, she's not a professional scientist, but she has a keen interest in it uh, from her university days. And um, when I was a teenager, uh, there was a flurry of popular writing uh, in science <clears throat> by people like Stephen Hawking and Carl Sagan. Uh, and she would get me all these books. Um, there were also uh, her books from her university days um, heavily underlined books by Bertrand Russell and uh, she passed them on to me uh, after reading them herself um, with my father's glasses uh, balanced on the tip of her nose. Um, I vividly remember her uh, looking up occasionally uh, from these books flushed with excitement uh, to read out a passage to us um, and I, I also uh, want to thank her for her ruthless discipline uh, when it came to studying. Uh, she gave me no quarter. <laughs> um, I was expected uh, not just to do well, uh, but uh, also, to, I mean, more importantly, to really understand my lessons. And um, <clears throat> uh, what, a, what a gift uh, to, to, get, to have got. Um, what greater lesson uh, can a parent uh, give to a child? So thank you, Ami. <laughs> this whole effort is dedicated to you <clears throat> right um, so the world health organization and public health thinking in general uh, works with fixed ideas of wealth and hospital resources in judging health issues um, but what is health and what are resources covid 19 reduced to nothing the resources of the world's richest and most technologically advanced countries. We have to ask ourselves, what was the worth of all these resources when looking at the ravages of COVID-19 in countries like the UK and Italy? <clears throat> these are countries that have made public health services into a defining socio-political project since the middle of the last century. How much of the Western response to COVID-19 was a scientific and public-spirited response to a new disease? And how much of it was the disorientation of being shocked out of its complacency and a scramble to cover up for the fallibility of its wanted health services? In my previous lectures, I had mentioned Professor Charles Knight he is a senior doctor in the British NHS and was appointed CEO of the London Nightingale Hospital. This was one of the <clears throat> many uh, surged hospitals, surge hospital uh, facilities in the UK uh, that were built to accommodate the anticipated flood of COVID patients requiring ventilators. Uh, the London Nightingale was built with 4,000 beds and was then closed <clears throat> after seeing only 54 patients and basically remaining empty for weeks. 
Uh, Professor Charles Knight's uh, remarks when the, when the London NHS Nightingale was closed are revealing of the true psychology of the Western response to COVID-19. He is reported to have said, and I quote, it's much easier to build a new hospital than to staff it. And I think the honest answer is that it would have been really very, very, very difficult to staff all those thousands of beds. <clears throat> but we were faced, he goes on to say, uh, with a situation where people were going to die because of a lack of ventilators. So we had to do something because the alternative was unthinkable. But <clears throat> as we discussed in my previous lectures, patients will die if they're put on ventilators without the staff to operate them properly. So what was the unthinkable alternative? Patients dying or allowing yourselves to admit that your medical services had been reduced to nothing before this novel disease. What also comes through starkly um, when listening to doctors uh, in the developed world is the lack of experience, at least of recent experience, of dealing with infectious disease. We have already discussed in my earlier lectures how doctors at the center of the COVID outbreak in Northern Italy wrote about the misalignment of their current medical practice with the demands of infectious disease. And uh, I quoted to you from uh, a paper in the third week of March by Dr. Nakuti uh, and others uh, that came out while Italy was still in the thick of its outbreak. Um, it's called at the epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic and humanitarian crisis in Italy. Uh, and it's published in the New England Journal of Medicine of Medical Science. And uh, this is what Dr. Nakoti and colleagues have to say. Uh, coronavirus is the Ebola of the rich. The more medicalized and centralized the society, the more widespread the virus. In the same vein, Dr. Georgina Piccoli says in uh, her excellent article called Hospitals as Health Factories, published in the Journal of Nephrology, that the coronavirus epidemics should indeed lead to a number of reflections on the organization of healthcare and the way contemporary medicine has lost sight of some diseases, such as infectious ones, that were probably prematurely seen as diseases of the past. And um, she goes on to say, we have definitely not won the fight against infectious diseases, but <clears throat> we have probably forgotten about them too soon. In a high technology setting, it is all too easy to forget the overwhelming, often dark power of nature. This lack of uh, experience, recent experience in the developed world of dealing with infectious disease is a condition itself brought about by wealth. Most of us are familiar with the idea of demographic transition. A study of the disease profile of countries reveals that in parallel to demographic transition, there is also a kind of epidemiological transition. In low-income countries, the disease burden, <clears throat> that is the deaths from disease in a population, is preponderantly from infectious disease. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, for instance, the infectious disease burden is 60%, while the non-infectious disease burden is 20%. <clears throat> 
In high-income countries like Italy, Germany, the US, France and the UK, the disease burden is reversed, ranging from about 3 to 8% under the head of infectious disease and around 90% under the head of non-infectious disease. Developing countries like India, Pakistan and Bangladesh show a state of epidemiological transition to a higher burden from infectious to non-infectious disease in the proportion of about 30% infectious to 50% non-infectious. Some countries like Iceland have no infectious disease burden at all apart from about 100, just 100 respiratory infectious deaths in a year. Yearly infectious disease deaths in Norway and Sweden number in the mere thousands. This is toy town compared with larger and more diverse and complex countries elsewhere in the world whose infectious disease burden is in the tens of thousands if not the millions. Owing to their small size and relative isolation, Nordic countries were able to keep their COVID incidence relatively low. But you cannot look upon these countries as models for others to follow. And it's important to understand this. <clears throat> these countries are saved from disease by their smallness, lack of diversity, climate and distance from the rest of the world. These places, which are held up by international development organizations as the gold standard for the world, have no lessons for us especially not in COVID times. <clears throat> not only do rich countries have a lower burden uh, of infectious disease, uh, a lower incidence, they also have a lower incidence of it owing to climate and geography. Many infectious diseases simply do not exist there, uh, which further limits their experience in dealing with this type of disease. When the full story of COVID-19 is finally told, a chapter will surely be devoted to the lack of experience of Western doctors with malaria, dengue and fevers of uncertain provenance, which made them hesitate and hesitate again over the use of medications like hydroxychloroquine, broad spectrum antibiotics like azithromycin and doxycycline and mild viral inhibitors <coughs> like ivermectin. These are drugs that are used in malaria, dengue, even deworming and other infectious uh, diseases, infections uh, whose therapeutic uh, effects doctors for, from Asia and Africa are well familiar with. Even <clears throat> relatively less developed countries like Bangladesh quickly turn to these drugs for treatment and prophylaxis of COVID-19. May go, uh, which may go somewhere, uh, some way in explaining why this disease spread slower and had a lower mortality in developing countries than in richer ones. While the World Health Organization made the case for disease containment by invoking grim portents of uh, what it called the poor and dense populations of developing countries, it was these countries that led the charge for finding therapies for COVID-19. In Bangladesh, the enterprising Dr. Tariq Alam was the first doctor who designed the ivermectin and doxycycline protocol for patients. 
uh, which he said gave excellent uh, results. And after that, countries around the world started trying these medicines. He has been asked by several Western countries, including the US, to join clinical trials for ivermectin. <clears throat> I have already described the immediate issuance in India of advisories for the off-label use of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. Uh, the work that started for the repurposing of drugs and the development of an indigenous version of Fabiparivir. Once the US cleared Remdesivir, contracts for its manufacture were given to Indian and Pakistani pharmaceutical companies. Nepal and Pakistan were able to rely on their firm ally China for medical supplies and other assistance. India turned to Russia for help with data on Fabiparivir trials. So, the World Health Organization has to stop thinking of Asia and Africa merely as charity cases. We are not entirely without resources against epidemic disease. In fact, our doctors and pharmaceutical companies have shown an agility and resourcefulness in COVID times that matches and even surpasses that of the most advanced countries in the world. <clears throat> There are many ways in which we need to start thinking differently about health issues, especially when we compare countries. An interesting example is the death rate of countries. Even though we think of richer countries as being healthier than poorer ones, the annual death rates of countries are surprisingly similar despite massive disparities in wealth. Going by figures given out by the WHO, and all these figures are linked on my blog, the death rate for most countries of the world is close to 1%, with a few countries at the lower end at about 0.5%, and even fewer countries at the higher end at 1.5%. So the picture that emerges is by no means one of a conquest of death or disease as countries get richer. People in richer countries tend to die from different causes, cancers and heart disease, as compared with those from poorer ones. But there is no escaping death and sickness. They merely come in different forms. People in rich countries have greater average longevity, but the picture of old age that has been revealed from the ravages of COVID-19 in developed countries which I discussed in my earlier papers, in my earlier lectures, is hardly one to be envied. It looks more like a Faustian deal with disease than a release from it. Personally, I'd, I'd rather die of malaria in the arms of my grandchildren at 50 in the African bush than slowly watch myself suffocating to death all alone in a care home in some rich Western country. <clears throat> the World Health Organization and the public health sector in general will look at things like the numbers of physicians or hospital beds per thousand of the population as a determinant of the state of affairs uh, of its health. As a very general point, this is correct. <clears throat> the more doctors and hospitals you have, the more people you can treat. And the richer you are, the more doctors and hospitals you can have. But what should be taken as a tentative opening volley sort of understanding of the health landscape of a country 
is interpreted too literally and given axiomatic status. Cuba probably has the most medical resources per capita of any country. Its physician per thousand population, uh, per thousand of population ratio is the world's highest at eight or nine. And the second highest is Sweden's, whose figure is only half of Cuba's at four. Even uh, the hospital beds to population ratio of rich countries is nowhere near in proportion to the relative wealth of countries. Going by the World Bank system of income classification, the relative wealth of lower income countries to the least wealthy, to the least wealth, threshold higher income countries is 1 is to 12. So this will be much higher as you get richer and richer high income countries. Okay, but we start at a ratio of 1 is to 12. And guess what their beds per thousand of population ratio is? It's a 1 is to 3.88, 1 is to less than 4. And this ratio is even higher when it comes to a comparison of high income countries with lower middle and upper middle income countries. Um, uh, to the 4.82 beds per thousand of high income countries, upper middle uh, income countries have a figure of 3.41 and lower middle income countries 2.8. So <clears throat> about the same and almost half, whereas the disparity in wealth is several times greater. The difference in the percentage of ICU beds between these groups of countries is even lower. High income and upper middle income countries have about the same percentage of ICU beds within uh, their number of hospital beds. And uh, lower income countries have 1.6% uh, compared with higher income countries, uh, which is 3.57%. Uh, and lower middle income countries have 2.38%. Uh, <clears throat> There are other interesting uh, uh, figures which emerge if you actually uh, start studying them, um, taking off the glasses that, is, that are always put on uh, to us by the public health sector. If you compare the incidence of tuberculosis as a percentage of the number of tuberculosis deaths given by the World Health Organization, you get a figure of about 8.5% for India. So 8.5% for India. And this is the same as the figure for Italy, 8.5%, and Germany, 8.3%. And it's lower, so we are doing better uh, than that for France, which is at about 10.6%, and only double that for the US at 4.6%, and the UK at 4.3%. The figure for Kenya and South Africa at 4.3% and 4% respectively is as good or better than that for the US and the UK. The figure for Mexico is about 11%, which is close to that for France. Hang on, it gets more and more interesting. The figure for Sweden is exceptionally high at 17%, almost. 17%. Norway has shown zero tuberculosis deaths in recent years, but the number of tuberculosis patients has remained unchanged at about 300 for several years. This might be indicative of some difficulty in Norway's ability to cure tuberculosis even while keeping its victims alive. The year 2002 was a terrible year for TB in Norway, with 100 TB deaths estimated in that year against an estimated incidence of 280 cases. This gives a crude mortality of over 35%.
um, <clears throat> all, all the data is, is linked on, on, my, on my blog. Uh, in early June, it gets more and more and more interesting. In early June, Dharavi, we spoke about Dharavi a couple of lectures back. Uh, it's uh, In Mumbai, it is said to be Asia's biggest slum. Um, and it has now recorded, uh, by early July, it had recorded 2,300 cases and 82 deaths from COVID-19. This is nearly one-third in Dharavi, one-third the COVID deaths and one-quarter of the COVID cases in Norway. Even though Norway has about the same to half the population of Dharavi, depending on how many migrant workers fled from Dharavi during the lockdown. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. I must highlight here that, uh, yes, I must highlight this, that these calculations of the, uh, you could call them rough mortality rates, these are not from the WHO. Okay? These are my calculations based on WHO mortality estimates and case uh, incidence estimates uh, for TB. Okay? And you can see again the calculation and the data, I've put it on my blog. Um, <clears throat> the WHO and public health officials, the, the, and there's another point, the WHO and public health officials will say that uh, no, you cannot compare country-wise data. Uh, and you also cannot compare year-wise data, okay? But if that is the case, if that is the case, then why are we doing exactly this when it comes to COVID-19? Why, why are we looking at any data at all, okay? Um, I, I argue in, a, in another paper, which will come out uh, next month, that, I mean, we don't really, we don't really need to look at this kind of data to deal with the COVID crisis. But, but the data is being put out, and it is being used to argue the case for containment. I mean, that, that's the whole, I mean, if, if the data doesn't mean anything, then why have epidemiologists at all? Okay, so the whole argument is built around data. And now the WHO is saying that its own data. See, what does data, what does data mean? What do these case and mortality figure means, figures mean? If you can't compare year-on-year -year figures for the same country, if you can't compare last year's tuberculosis figures with next year's tuberculosis figures, then what is the meaning of those figures? And the other thing is, uh, what does it mean if you can't uh, compare country to country figures either? Okay, um, all the WHO and, uh, and so, I mean, you know, either this means something or it means nothing. All right. And um, the, the other thing is that the WHO disease data uh, seems to be nothing other than modeled estimates from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, which is headquartered in the remote state of Washington in the US. And, you know, for all we know, these people have never been to countries like India, uh, for which they have done all these estimations. <clears throat> the physician to uh, the physician per thousand of population ratio, physician density, for developing countries is about uh, 0 0.6 to 1 in South Asian countries and about 0.1 to 0.2 in the poorer African countries like Kenya and 2.6 to 4 in high income countries like the US, UK and European countries. Now, uh, considering this disparity in the physician density, South Asian and African countries are doing quite well to have comparable tuberculosis death rates to the US, UK and Europe. Uh, the four times higher doctor to patient ratio of Sweden to India's 
did not stop it from having more COVID deaths than India till as late as mid-May. <clears throat> Even accounting for cases that have been missed in South Asia and Africa due to under-reporting, uh, this says something about how well doctors are coping with the cases that do come to them, despite the relative lack of resources and the larger number of cases. Even a country like the Democratic Republic of Congo, with a physician per thousand of population ratio of 0.1, is managing extraordinarily well. Uh, if you look, for instance, at their yearly malaria figures, 1.5 crore reported cases to about 62,000 deaths. And so is Kenya, uh, which has over 27 lakh reported malaria cases uh, in a typical year to 9,800 deaths. So what? Uh, so the point here is that there is no straight line between a country's wealth and its hospital resources, or its physician density, or its ability to combat uh, infectious disease, or its ability to manage high high volumes of patients. But this is how superficially, mechanically, and crudely the WHO and public uh, uh, policy uh, experts have been thinking about health issues for a long time. Um, <clears throat> we should pause here a moment to explore more deeply the rather curious phenomena of countries like Norway and Sweden appearing to do so badly by their tuberculosis patients despite their great wealth and high physician per thousand ratios uh, which are uh, 2.9 for Norway and four for Sweden. If you look at the WHO's burden of disease data, there is an indication that countries in North America and Europe have had a persistent problem with treating respiratory infections, in, uh, including influenzas, that flare up into severe respiratory illness, which is what a bad case of COVID is. This is something that the WHO has been recording in, in its data periodically without seeming to have noticed it or to have understood its import. Uh, if you look at the WHO Global Burden of Disease data for these countries in North America and Europe, you see that uh, under the infectious disease head, they have a smattering of TB, meningitis and diarrheal disease deaths every year. But the bulk of their infectious disease burden comes in the category of what is called respiratory infections. And this is an intriguing category uh, for the WHO to take in the burden of profile listing because it's not clear why uh, it's taken uh, uh, under a separate head from the rest of you know, all the other infectious diseases which are named uh, per disease, malaria, dengue, meningitis, hepatitis A and so on. And uh, because, you know, uh, technically under the, uh, their classification key, which is called the WHO International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems, um, this is on their website, uh, respiratory infections include uh, influenzas and pneumonias, but the burden of disease profile does not record deaths under the subheadings of influenza and pneumonia and simply subdivides uh, respiratory infections into three types, upper respiratory, lower respiratory and otitis, which is ear-related infections. 
and uh, the bulk of their infectious disease uh, mortality is coming in this category persistently in italy doctors writing about the covid-19 epidemic uh, noted that there has been in general over the years what they call a, a heavy seasonality of deaths with 25% more deaths in the winter as compared with other seasons and many of these yearly excess deaths they say are related to respiratory infections from influenza perhaps these respiratory uh, infections have been neglected in rich countries because in terms of absolute numbers the communicable disease burden totally eclipses uh, um, uh, sorry yeah i mean the non communicable uh, disease burden totally eclipses the communicable disease one uh, for instance uh, the us has a, a, communi a non communicable disease deaths of about 22 to 24 lakhs a year uh you know as uh, compared um compared with uh the tb deaths are in the thousands they have one uh, lakh one lakh uh, tb and hiv uh, and aids deaths so i, I mean you know the the, the non communicable burden is um, massive uh, compared with the communicable burden and so uh, what seems to have happened is that with covid-19 not only were richer countries caught by surprise with an infectious disease uh, which is a category of disease in which they already have relatively low experience but also with a respiratory infectious disease which is a category of infectious disease with which they were already not doing very well compared with all the other infectious uh, diseases in their disease profile by early july deaths by covid-19 were double or more than double the annual respiratory infectious disease deaths for the us italy and france uh, nearly three times the annual respiratory infectious disease deaths for spain nearly double those for sweden and well over those for the uk so even though covid-19 deaths might turn out to be a blip in the overall mortality in western countries uh, this will be because their mortality profile is dominated by their non communicable disease burden but there is no denying that as an infectious disease the covid-19 mortality in these countries is unprecedented massive and represents a real crisis in their system at the same time their disease profile also raises the question of how long covid-19 can be privileged as it has been when so many many more of their people are affected by non communicable disease by early july uh, as i just said the typical annual number of deaths in the us from non communicable disease still exceeded covid-19 deaths by 19 times and uh, this was exceeded by 24 times in may and in the uk and spain by 12 times and in italy and france by 16 times so what these countries need to do is not to narrow the focus to covid-19 but to expand the focus to include more attention to infectious disease than they have been used to doing in the last 80 odd years and i think that uh, the public there are right uh, as some of some a certain section is already doing they are right to question the excessive focus the almost exclusive focus on covid-19 uh, given the disease profile of these countries and i think that uh, we might actually be in the middle of a much worse and silent uh, health crisis in these places um in uh, non communicable diseases the situation for developing countries is somewhat different uh, because infectious disease already occupies a large part of the medical attention here 
but uh, this might be a good reminder to countries like india not to lose sight of infectious disease as it goes up the income ladder and another thing to be borne in mind is that with the proliferation of private hospitals some of our infectious disease burden may also be going unnoticed it may just be being uh, you know effectively uh, suppressed and ignored because it is less lucrative for these hospitals than cancer or heart treatment uh, in covid times it is also important to recognize the value of the general experience of developing countries with large numbers of people and patients in a given year developing countries in south asia and africa see an infectious disease incidence numbering in the lakhs and crores that is in the hundreds of thousands and the tens of millions while developed countries like the uk germany italy or spain will see mere tens of thousands of cases in absolute numbers even the non communicable disease burden in the larger developing countries is much greater than that of most developed ones uh, to give you an example uh, at india's 2400 bed all india institute of medical services aims uh, this is a huge government hospital in new delhi and uh, it's uh, and it's only one of thousands of large uh, government hospitals around the country the average daily footfall the daily footfall okay is 15000 okay so <laughs> this means that it sees as many patients in two or three days as some of the biggest some of the biggest us hospitals see in an entire year um and i take the us as an example because uh, it, it it has a large uh, population compared with other uh, developed countries um Uh, in uh, 2018-19, AIMS reported that it saw about 38 lakh patients uh, and uh, 2.5 lakh inpatients and conducted 2 lakh surgeries. Uh, compare this with the uh, US's uh, biggest hospitals, um, the New York Presbyterian uh, Hospital, Weill Cornell Medical Center, which has about 2,200 beds, sees 48,000 emergency room patients. and conducts about 77900 surgeries annually uh, the florida hospital in orlando sees 32000 inpatients and 53000 outpatients annually and the methodist hospital in indianapolis sees 97000 patients a year aims is seeing 15000 patients a day um this is not to say this is not to say that developing countries or poorer countries have some kind of magic formula just because they see more cases but a better understanding of the kinds of numbers developing countries face as a routine would have helped both them and richer countries to respond more sensibly and moderately to the covid-19 crisis what's happening is that we are not seeing the relevance of the differences in hospitals and medical practice that grow out of uh, these dis- differences that we have just discussed in the disease profile of countries at different stages in their development led by the world's leading authority on disease the world health organization we think of the differences only in terms of rich and poor and resource constraint or resource abundance and we fail to see that the nature of medicine of hospital management and of disease management practiced in developing countries with a large burden of infectious disease and an endemic lack of resources might actually have lessons for all of us in covid times 
we need to pivot for answers from looking at the richest countries of the world to looking at the poorest ones because they are the ones with the relevant experience whereas the richer ones have virtually none we should have been speaking to doctors who function with less and not more resources because covid-19 dwarfs even the world's best resources talking to doctors who have cut their teeth in indian government hospitals is in of itself a fascinating experience and i'm sure this is the case for doctors in any part of the third world in the normal round they see a breathtaking range of diseases among patients of every class and color and in every stage of illness they function in conditions of perpetual resource shortage indian doctors familiar with big government hospitals like aims in new delhi will describe how patients are lined up on mattresses in the corridors at a pinch the other day a dentist friend uh, had me spellbound describing his early training at king george's medical college uh, in lucknow uh, where there would be four patients uh, lined up in a row, row on dental chairs in the corridor and he treat them simultaneously injecting one uh, with local anesthetic leaving the anesthetic to kick in while checking a cavity in the next and so on in the pre covid era all this would have had westerners shaking their heads in horror but this is life in a crowded and under resourced situation and many of the scenes from india that i have described would now be familiar in covid hit hospitals in the west uh, just a few weeks into their covid outbreaks there were reports from europe of patients being treated in corridors public policy experts who are trained in the paradigm of public health thinking and policy thinking in general that comes from the west are particularly close to the idea that they may actually have something to learn from third world countries what we really needed was public health experts who had the measure who had the measure of the contrasting disease profiles and capabilities of different countries we needed experts who could draw upon these diverse experiences with disease and medical resources to suggest new ways of thinking in the covid crisis and this is where the who as a supposedly international health authority could have shown real leadership by bringing the attention of nations to the medical experience with disease beyond their borders in other settings even in places far away on the other side of the globe to spark off the novel thinking that this novel disease so clearly requires but the who seems to have no sense of the richness or meaning of the information about the state of disease and medical practice at its disposal at its disposal from all over the world even though this information has been collected by the who all the attention is on the decontextualized and disease agnostic and as it turns out endemically inaccurate mathematical modeling they need to sack their epidemiologists or ditch them and really get in to how hospitals and doctors are functioning in different countries different approaches 
you know uh, uh, and um, and the way in which treatment is carried out different types of medical practice uh, one of the things that you have in developing countries is that you don't have and I didn't have the space to go into this in this already very long papers but you know we, we don't have the uniformity what I'm seeing in developed countries is that either everything is owned by the government either it's a big public sector uh, you know uh, medical service or uh, it's owned by uh, very big uh, private uh, multinational uh, companies and trusts and uh, but you know in in the in in our part of the world in the developing world you have so many levels uh, at which medical services are organized you know from very very small neighborhood uh, practices by uh, doctors uh, you know uh, functioning in small towns and you know almost village type environments um, and then you know somewhat larger practices uh, neighborhood practices which are uh, a little more fancy but where you know the same doctor will be uh, you know treating uh, people from uh, a room uh, in his even in his own house um, sometimes for free uh, uh, who you know and and, and but he, and have a, and have another job his day job uh, in a bigger hospital and then you have you know uh, clinics where uh, four or five doctors come together or 10 of them come together to share the space um, uh, but it's still, you know, uh, uh, in, a, in a neighborhood uh, kind of thing or it will serve four or five uh, neighborhoods in the district. And then, of course, you know, you, you have the really large hospitals. And uh, in, in India, uh, we, are, we are slowly creeping towards the point where these big companies will start buying all of these practices up. But I think that we should, uh, we should actually push back against that. And, you know, uh, we should fight for this uh, diversity in our medical practice. It operates in many ways uh, to, to, uh, to, to help on a lot of levels. And I think one very important way in which it functions is that, um, you know, uh, when, you, when you have doctors uh, at, at the less fancy end, you know, the, these small neighborhood practices, uh, they come uh, often from very close to the same socioeconomic background as the patients uh, who come to them for treatment and uh, so that puts the patient into uh, in a stronger position because uh, wh what we always have to remember uh, is that uh, professions like uh, services like law and medical services uh, these are negotiated or it is always nego it ought to be there there should be a negotiation between the client and the service provider to a certain extent um, uh, there's a there's a certain area of discretion and uh, uh, arguably both lawyers and doctors uh, you know uh, the, uh, it's annoying uh, but you you do learn something from the perspective of your client and uh, it's it's also more democratic especially in in health you know you're you're talking about someone's health their children's health they should have a, a, a be in a stronger position and uh, this is not what happens when you're faced with a big machine whether it's a big public uh, you know sector health services a faceless bureaucracy or whether it's you know these huge uh, medical oligarchies in the private sector uh, you don't give that chance and um, so, so this is these are all things that we should be bearing in mind and thinking about. And you know, let's move the conversation here. You know, I mean, uh, the, the, all this talk about these models and, and it's it's not taken us very far. Uh, we we need to be much more. We need to have a much more textured and deep uh, engagement uh, with all these issues than we've been having so far uh, using just all these numbers and data. Right.
Uh, the other thing is that we should also pause here. We should also think about numbers differently uh, because uh, they, they note the advantage of numbers and of having a relatively uh, larger young working population that countries like India and China have. China tops the world with 28 lakh physicians. By the way, uh, you know, for listeners from abroad, lakhs is five zeros and crores is seven zeros. Okay, so China tops the world with 28 lakh physicians going by its physician density of two per thousand. India's physician density of about 0.9 per thousand gives a total of 11.8 lakh physicians. So even though the US has a higher physician density than both these countries at 2.6, it has fewer physicians in total at 8.5 lakhs. And Italy and Sweden, uh, which have among the highest physician densities of developed countries at 4 per thousand, and uh, UK and, the Nor and Norway at, um, uh, have physician densities of 2.8 and 2.9 per thousand, uh, these densities work out to about 1.9 lakh physicians in the UK, 2.4 lakh in Italy, 36,000 in Sweden and 15,500 in Norway. These are very small pools to draw upon uh, compared with many developing uh, countries. And uh, Cuba, with over 90,000 physicians, is able not only to cater to its own population, but also to send doctors around the world for its famous medical diplomacy. Um, and, you know, it's been so disappointing, but also so typical to see how instead of being grateful for this, Western countries have been berating Cuba for trying to spread influence by offering its doctors to the world. Um, the other thing is that... Uh, this is not the place to go into um, this issue in detail, um, but um, we really have to uh, revisit the idea that larger populations are nothing but a burden on, on countries. Uh, this is far too simplistic an evaluation of uh, the implications and dynamics of a, young, of a large population, uh, especially a relatively young one. Uh, having a large population to draw upon in times of emergency has its own advantages. Uh, and we also have to look behind the idea of exponential growth. Um, uh, because uh, there is a type of racism uh, that is inherent in the idea of exp uh, exponential growth when applied to populations. Almost always, when the sector of exponential growth has been raised, uh, it has been the bigger and faster growing colored populations of the developing world uh, that the experts have had in mind. The last time that exponential growth was made into an enterprise uh, by the West was in the era when the colored nations, such as my own, uh, had just begun to emerge from colonialism. Uh, there was a feeling uh, in the West that these countries would now flood them with, uh, flood the West uh, uh, with immigrants. And so from the late 1940s uh, to the early 80s, Malthusianism was preached uh, to the colored nations everywhere and they were encouraged to take drastic measures of population control. It was this that led China to implement its notorious one-child policy and India to un unleash its infamous ster sterilization drive. Uh, much of this was advocated and funded by Europeans and Americans intent on improving uh, the lives of the poor. And many of them were great believers in eugenics and uh, other horrible ideas. Um, what we have to remember 
uh, is that racial hygiene, population hygiene, disease hygiene, all, all of these are the dodgy, awful ancestors of the idea uh, of hygiene thinking. That's just a fact. Um, coming back to the discussion of population growth, once the atrocities of Chinese and Indian population control became known, uh, exponential population growth was debunked as a theory. Um, uh, uh, exponential, uh, and you know, because as it was found uh, that as in the case of modeling for COVID-19, nowhere did populations double at the exponential rates uh, that had been predicted. Uh, instead, the phenomena of demographic transition was observed, which, though it gave big populations, also showed the demographic dividend, uh, which is uh, the benefits of a thriving uh, young population. Now, exponential growth has reared its ugly head once again through the discourse of Western epidemiologists. And uh, we should not be naive. We uh, in the third world, in the developing world, uh, colored nations, we should not be naive about the very real fears that the aging and diminishing populations of the developed world, of the West, have about us um, uh, in the developing world. And, uh, you know, we, we need to be vigilant uh, about how uh, they, they, some of them, uh, try to work through uh, international development agencies like the World Health Organization and UN organizations uh, to keep uh, us in check out of these uh, out of these fears. And um, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I, I must say that you know uh, the the West also corrects itself and uh, their traditions of <coughs> uh, of open and fair discussion and of relentless. Uh, uh, you know, scrutiny and looking backwards. I mean, all of this uh, means that they do, you know, they do correct themselves and they are um, uh, forces uh, and, uh, you know, people uh, there who uh, always fight back uh, much more than, than people over here do. Uh, but, but you know, I mean, we need to be vigilant about this because there, there is a tendency from time to time of these Western nations developing, you know, if you're going to talk about exponential, they develop exponential rates of paranoia about us. Uh, whether this is expressed in the form of concern about population growth or pollution or pandemics. Right, so uh, that concludes part 8 of this lecture series. Thank you for your attention. Uh, today's lecture will go up later tonight on my blog, uh, covidlectures.blogspot.com, where the full paper and parts 1 to 7 of my earlier lectures have already been published. Uh, along with links to the YouTube uh, videos and podcasts for this series. See you tomorrow, 7 p.m. India time, 2.30 p.m. London time and 9.30 a.m. New York time on Facebook Live for another round of the COVID lecture series, Dodgy Science, Woeful Ethics. Thank you.